Welcome to episode 40 of the Network Collective Community Roundtable. In today's episode, we're going back to our protocol deep dive series and finishing up our look into MPLS. Today, we have Nick Russo and Jeff Chansura joining us again to take a deeper look at Fast Reroute. So take a minute to grab a drink and get comfy because we have another fast-paced show coming your way. Sponsoring today's episode is Viavi Solutions. Viavi is a leader in the application and network management industry. Viavi focuses on the end user experience and providing products that optimize performance and ultimately reduce the time to resolution across all kinds of scenarios. Thanks to Viavi Solutions for sponsoring today's episode, and we'll be telling you a bit more about their solution later on. So Nick, Jeff, thanks for joining us again today. Uh, so I guess we're talking about fast reroute. So where do you want to start? Hey, Jordan. Yeah, it's good to be back after a couple months. I think I think the best place to start on this is, you know, just give kind of the 30 second recap of what we talked about last time. In the third episode of the MPLS series, we talked about MPLS traffic engineering. And when you think of traffic engineering in general, you think of, I want to send certain kinds of traffic different ways through a network. And Jeff and I explained in some detail about how that works. But there is another very cool aspect of traffic engineering that we use, and it's more of a reactive type design where when problems occur in the network, for example, outages, we can use traffic engineering as a fast reroute technology to quickly move around those issues without having to wait for things that are generally slower, like IGP and BGP convergence. So that is kind of the the, the point of TEFRR, uh, traffic engineering fast reroute, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So really the purpose of this technology is having a way using MPLS encapsulation and TE tunnels to route around problems in the network. That's kind of the, the one sentence summary about this technology. So maybe we should start here. Fast reroute. Yep. So why is a tunnel important in fast reroute to begin with? Because I mean, we can talk about the technologies themselves, but uh, let's begin with a very basic concept, which a lot of people don't even understand is, like you can do fast reroute in say EIGRP, even though it's not called fast reroute, but that's actually what it is with a feasible successor. And then you have fast reroute with um, LFAs in OSPF and IS to IS, but those don't seem to tunnel anything. So why would we need to tunnel to get to fast reroute, I mean, if you actually see. they are. If you look at LFA implemented with SPF and SF, it still relies on tunneling by using LDP. So it's okay. not pure IP solution, which was designed as non-wire addresses, but due to uh, kind of unhealthy use of IP address, many other things, it was never implemented. But you so. can do one hop without uh, any tunneling at all, right? You can do, if you think about it, like you can have LFAs without having any tunneling at all. So I think the point I was trying to get to there is that the reason you have to tunnel is because you're going past the point where the, your neighbor or somebody downstream from you would actually forward the traffic back to you. They're going to loop it back to you because you're their best path. So you have to get past that point, which the only way to do that is through a tunnel. Right. And I think yeah. I see it as a kind of a two-dimensional thing, Russ. It's, you know, what you're describing as a micro loop, of course, where, you know, there's a failure occurs in the network and you need to tunnel traffic across nodes that are still too ignorant about the changes in the network just because they haven't heard about it. They haven't right. finished computing SPF or whatever. But the, the other dimension to that, and we'll talk about a little bit later in the show, is about coverage as well. Um, because these tunneling technologies can also give you additional coverage for different failure conditions. And, you know, we'll talk uh, in detail about this towards the end of the show. But I, I like to think about those two dimensions as to answer the, the high level question of why do we need a tunnel? And, wow. and Jeff, there's probably some other inputs there. What do you think? Yeah, so actually I was talking about remote LFA, not LFA. LFA on itself yeah. doesn't require any tunneling. What it requires is to compute a path that verify that next knot is not going to loop it back to you. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So as long and as such path exists, you could use it. If it doesn't, then you need to tunnel to what we call PQ knot, right. which we'll describe later on, that will forward traffic to our destination, but you need to tunnel towards it in order to avoid looping traffic back. Right, exactly. So we actually don't have that in the show notes anyplace. Where, let's talk about the PQ space a little bit because that kind of underlies this, right? Yeah, we can talk about that a little bit, you know, and just to just so everyone has some context. The way the way that I like to think about PQ, kind of the easiest way is the PQ is kind of a, a logical midpoint between a source and a destination tunnel where 
I can guarantee that from my perspective, I can send traffic to all the nodes in this kind of nebulous P space, as we call it. I can send traffic to them without going over the protected resource, the link or the node. So I can send traffic to them without needing to traverse the thing I'm trying to protect. And the Q space is on the other side, which is the set of nodes that can send traffic to the destination. So when you take kind of the intersection of those two spaces, you'll end up with a set of PQ nodes, uh, at least one typically, but sometimes many. And you can tunnel to any of those PQ nodes and be guaranteed to have a loop-free path provided that you can tunnel to that PQ node to uh, avoid sending traffic to the P routers that may loop traffic back to avoid micro loops. And at the same time, guaranteeing that from the PQ node through the Q space down to the destination, you're not going over that protected resource. That's exactly right. Yeah. So there actually could be more than one PQ node. That's That's right. Yeah. It's a PQ space, I guess. Space, right. Yeah. I mean, we like to say one PQ node, but in reality, it's it's a PQ space. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. so people kind of get confused about that. Another way of looking at it is if you think about a distance vector protocol where it split horizons is you have to get past the point where it split horizons. Otherwise, the traffic's coming back to you. You think of mm-hmm. that like as the head of a waterfall. I've got to get to the top of the waterfall or the top of that tree and go back around if I'm looking at it as a DAG to keep myself from the traffic coming back at me somehow. So to do that, I've got to get over everybody who's in the middle. Now, yeah. now Nick is thinking about that salmon jumping over all the rocks. Yeah. The yeah. It's, there's, there's a couple different kind of analogous uh, yeah. approaches to kind of think about it, but the way, you know, the, the simple approach might be, you know, if you've got kind of a hill and then there's a guy on top of the hill who can see both destination, you know, both ends of it, you don't right. want to send traffic to all the middle guys on the middle of the slope who can't see the distant end and vice versa. So you kind of have this space of people roughly halfway through the network. Of course, when I say halfway, I mean, based on IGP cost, roughly halfway across the network where the PQ space is, or the, you know, the PQ space is going to be, there'll be a few nodes in that space. And it is to those nodes that your LFA tunnel ends. And then you just have regular transport across the right. Q space. Right. So okay. actually we specifically call it remote LFA. LFA is always interface level protection. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's, yeah, remote LFA because it's not loop free alternate. It's local to you. It's remote. It's multiple hops away. Yeah, so if you look at implementations, usually we would choose an LFA if both remote LFA and LFA exist and use remote LFA only if you cannot protect uh, locally. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, this picture got clearer for me when I started thinking about it in a ring topology. Right. So I yeah. think, think you, right. you talk about ring and you, know, you, have, you have five nodes. If it, there's somewhere on the ring where the traffic is going to split or where one router is right. going to send traffic this way and one router is going to send traffic the other way. Um, <clears throat> And the reality is, is that pretty much on the other end of that ring is usually where that PQ space begins, right? Like the idea is that I have to make it around all these intermediary nodes to the point where the traffic would split. Because if I don't make it past that, then I'm going to go across potentially the part of the ring that I'm using as my primary path. Right. In, in fact, this always only exists in rings, Jordan. This is okay, always, well, yeah. always a ring thing, right? Yeah. Regardless. If you have a full mesh, you would never have a PQ space. I mean... That's crazy. You right? would just have regular LFA protection. LFA, you yeah, wouldn't would need remote exactly. LFA. Yeah, exactly. Or on another extreme side, if you look at something like cloud topology, you don't need LFA because any ECMP pass is per definition loop free. Right. So you mm-hmm. just do fast rehashing versus an LFA computation. That's right. So yeah, I think it's probably, this is probably a good time just to, I think that was an important discussion, but just to kind of add some color back to the context of MPLS, traffic engineering, fast reroute. When we talk about LFAs, we're talking about, uh, I'll call them IGP extensions to the logic on things like OSPF and IS to IS. And then you can kind of bolt on some LDP in order to do, for example, remote LFA with LDP signaling and MPLS encapsulation. Traffic engineering fast reroute, at least traditionally, was the RSVP-based TE tunnels we talked about in the last episode. Uh, And while those are a little bit different than LFA, they have a certain set of trade-offs that I think we'll get into um, a little bit later. But what I think it would be kind of good is to talk just a little bit about the different types of TE backups, because there are a lot, there are such a ridiculous number of options here, it would be foolish to try to cover all of them. But I think it would make sense just to cover a couple. Um, And just to make one point, uh, the difference is... And when you use RSVPT, you could configure your backup that would reserve resources. So you would ensure that your backup 
is getting the same treatment as your primary or better or worse. But the point of RCPT is resource reservation. When you do LFA, you might create congestion. So you, mm -hmm. you don't really know about resources that are used by existing traffic on the network. Yep, exactly. Yeah, this, the whole, whenever you're using RSVP uh, for traffic engineering, you know, you're going to pay a penalty with a lot more state retained in the network, but at the same time, you get to customize your backups yeah. uh, with various, you know, bandwidth allocations and all kinds of other fun stuff you can do with traffic engineering. And on that point, uh, there's really two kind of main types uh, or two models for doing TE tunnels. I'll talk about this only briefly. Uh, there's a detour option and a facility kind of option. And these words are a little bit confusing. So I'll try to explain them briefly, but in the, you know, suppose I got some TE tunnels running across the network and I want to protect a link or a node or something like that. The detour option is a one-to-one -one protection mechanism that says for every label switch path, that's a TE tunnel flowing through a link, I'm going to create one dedicated backup for it and they could all be different. And so it's going to be LSP based. I can say, hey, I've got one TE tunnel carrying voice and I want it to go this way. I've got another TE tunnel carrying some web traffic and I want the detour to go another way. So the same link could fail, but the two TE tunnels going over that link will go different ways based on the detour. Um, that is an option that I've personally not deployed a whole lot. So Jeff, I don't know if you have, uh, but you know, as a Cisco guy, this isn't even supported. So I'm not, I haven't used this a whole lot. I tend to tend to understand and use the facility backups more. So I don't, Jeff, have you ever used the, had a need for the detour backup option? Yeah. So the last networking vendor I've worked for, so Redback Network, Ericsson, we did support both ways of protecting it. And in some cases, having one-to-one -one protection was pretty much mandatory as yeah. well as pass protection from ingress to egress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then of course the facility option is the one to many that says, rather than try to pick off individual TE tunnels. So I could have a hundred tunnels going across a link or a node, and I can just have one general backup that protects that network facility, like a link or a node. So it's more of a general purpose backup. Of course, you can have multiple facility backups with different criteria to move traffic, but the granularity is a little bit less at the expense of gaining better scale. Uh, so those are just kind of a high level summary of, of a detour and facility backups. And then, you know, I talked a little bit about the protection of the resource, for example, the link or the node. And uh, Jeff, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if these are Cisco only terms, but the, the next hop and the next next hop, I always found those kind of confusing. I just like to call it link protection and node protection, respectively. Uh, basically, these are the things that fail in a network, links and nodes, and we want to protect against those failures. Yeah, that's typically. Uh, I would say that yeah. pretty much industry terms, because yeah. you're protecting either your next hop or next, next hop, which is the next device. So sure. you're protecting the node. Yeah. So there's, yeah. So link protection is the next hop. So you're protecting the path to the next hop. So if I'm, if I'm one router and I want to protect the path to the next router, that next hop protection is effectively saying the link between these two devices, it needs to be protected. But yeah, when right. you say next, next hop, you're effectively saying, I'm not trying to protect my path to the next router, but the one beyond it, that implies that you're protecting the trend, the, the traversal across the entire adjacent node. So right. that if yeah. there's a failure, the computation is different and you must avoid yeah. merging at the node you're protecting. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yep. So the, the, the mechanics of it are a little bit confusing, probably over audio. So I'm not going to get too much into it, but I will say that there are a couple kind of key terms here that we'll want to think about. So there's, there's two new terms that get introduced with traffic engineering fast reroute. There is a, a point of local repair, the PLR. This is effectively where uh, right, kind of right in front of the failure. So imagine there's, you know, uh, a fork in the road, if you will, where half of the road is broken, it's on fire, it's flooded or whatever. And then off to the left, there's a, a way you can drive around. That's kind of the point of local repair where, hey, quickly, we haven't determined the best path through the network yet, but we're going to take this fast reroute around the failure. That is the point of local repair. And it's typically the head end, or it's always the head end of that, that sh relatively short TE tunnel that goes around the failure. Where that TE tunnel ends at the tail end is called the merge point or MP where it merges back in to the original label switch path. And effectively the way TE fast reroute works. Now the label operations are a little bit different for detour and facility backups, but in general, at least for facility backups, you typically add another level of encapsulation. Again, one of the biggest powers of MPLS is uh, notwithstanding things like maximum stack depth and, and hardware limitations, you have kind of a theoretically infinite label stack depth. So you can say, hey, I need to push another set of labels on, typically one in this case, or I need to tunnel across those other routers who aren't aware of the failure yet. And once I get to the merge point, the router just before, it does its usual uh, penultimate hopping, reveals the original label, and on you go. 
So it's really a Band-Aid technology until the network can converge and then you can find a better path. But the idea is that by having a point of local repair, you can immediately respond to that failure rather than have to signal through RSVP messaging or IGP flooding or whatever mechanism you're using all the way back to the head end. It's much, much slower and you'll typically incur greater loss in the network. So it's actually so it's actually like a tunnel within a tunnel. So you end up with two yeah. head ends in the tunnel. You have a head end where the traffic ends in, is entering the, the, the tunnel itself, mm-hmm. the, the TE tunnel. Uh, and then you have a head end where the point of local repair is, mm-hmm. splitting off, like you said, like a fork in the road. And that takes you across this little additional bridge or whatever it is. Somebody threw up a temporary bridge, like in the military, how they mm-hmm. drop a bridge real fast across the river. So it takes you across this temporary bridge to get you around the burnt out bridge you need to go around. And it just, you, then you just crop back on and you're back on the main highway again, type of thing. So that's- So it depends, there are more complications to that in terms of uh, local versus global optimization and what mm-hmm. head and does with this information. But yeah. eventually, as Nick said, you're going to flood the changes and right. eventually head end of the tunnel is going to get notified and recompute what is the best next available tuna for that that will remove in make before break fashion so it mm-hmm. will establish new tunnel start sending traffic into it and then remove the temporary right yeah right. Exactly. yeah once yeah exactly so just like russ said you know i've got this this temporary bridge that i just threw down for a few hours ultimately what you want to do is send a policeman two miles up the road to direct traffic not to go down this route anymore and to go a completely different way on some other major right. road away from the burn bridge. And then once all the traffic is off the road, you can pull your bridge up, put it back on the truck and drive away. Right. Yeah. So that's make before break. Basically, we don't want to tear down the TE tunnel until the traffic has been switched off it and is working successfully on the new path. And then however, however much time later, a few seconds, then we can successfully tear down the tunnel with no loss. So the transition by head end because it's Mm -hmm. up to head end to put traffic into new tunnel and then uh-huh. signal on the old path, you could go free. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Right. Which which may include a completely different label stack or a different LSP, a different label switch path. It, could, may, it may be partially the same. In fact, the repair path, the, the ultimate path may run over the repair path, but it doesn't necessarily. Mm-hmm. It might. Like the temporary bridge could become permanent. Right. It, you just don't know. Until yeah, it just depends on the topology and the, the right. constraints. Like we talked about in the last show, there are so many different constraints for TE tunnel computation that it would be hard to, to forecast all that in advance. But the right. general idea is, you know, you'll get a better path at the end once the signaling occurs. And there are a lot of different ways that that could happen. Now, one of the complexities with this that we often don't think about is just bandwidth utilization and stuff like that, which is where we get into Jeff's original comment about RSVP and stuff, which is that you don't want to, if you bypass a link temporarily, you've got to have the head end go back and look and say, oh, but that link that was just used as a temporary bypass is actually overloaded or can't support that, that, that class of service. So I need to actually veer a different direction to make that work correctly. And this is yeah. where full view of the network becomes critical. And perhaps we could go and talk about PC bit in this case. Yeah, well, this is why you need a link state protocol, definitely. And this is where having a PCE controller or, or a path compu- computation element uh, makes a big difference. So uh, traditionally, path computation element would be stateless. It would receive a request from a head-end router saying, I need a tunnel to a particular destination. It would compute it and forget about it. Mm-hmm. In I mean, relatively recently, we've introduced stateful active PCs where you could have PC having all the topology near real time. So distributing all the loads metrics through T extensions to the IGPs and BGP less. Uh, we could compute a tunnel in near real time and have constant re-optimization from the PC perspective. So because it has a full map and all the characteristics and semantics of the network, it could run the computation on either regular basis on base of particular events. Yep. And just to, just for some background, for those who aren't as familiar, uh, BGP LS, like Jeff mentioned, is BGP link state. It's effectively a way of transporting link state information inside of BGP. So if you have a multi-area OSPF MPLS network or a multi-level IS to IS network, you know, the provider edge devices or, the, or just the TE tunnel head ends in general are only going to have a limited view to that flooding domain. 
but you can use BGP to kind of stitch all that information together. But rather than transport that information to all the PEs, you can centralize it in this thing called the PCE, which is kind of the all seeing eye for lack of a better term. And that device can be the one that commands the setup and teardown of TE tunnels. And there are a lot of different PCE models. Maybe that's a good topic for another show, but in general, what Jeff is saying is that we can, more fully centralized and give more control to the TE process and provide better optimization rather than completely distributing that path computation to uh, potentially thousands of routers. Yeah. It was a completely, I mean, we had an implementation or it was a way to do so, but it was so complicated because full visibility is only up to the, your area boundary. And then mm -hmm. you need to do some expansions. And if you cannot find a path, you need to go back and recompute it. It was an extremely complicated technology, one of the most complicated I remember in my life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 SDN before SDN was cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's pretty widely supported now. I'm uh, pleasantly surprised at how easy it is. I mean, there's pretty simple, straightforward PCEs to get it set up. BGPLS is pretty widely supported now, and you can generally go from zero to hero in a few hours uh, to play around with it, which is pretty cool. You don't need any hardcore infrastructure for it. Yeah, if you, if you look into canonical SDN architecture in one, it's BGP less up to the controller and PCEP to every headend. Mm -hmm. PC, you can, uh, PC, what's it? Path computation element protocol. Yes, yeah. so from yeah. uh, protocols that PCE talks to PCC, the right. yeah. path computation yeah. client. So we should, we should actually do a whole show on PCEP. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it that would, would be worth there's it. There's a lot there that could, we could talk about. Yeah. Uh, that would be kind of cool. So yeah. now, Let's talk about link protection versus node protection. Next top, next, next top. So um, in the notes here, it talks about PHP router, uh, pops, pop, top, pops, top most label, reveals next one, typically the LDP. Right. So why is this worse protection and yet it scales better? So this goes back to the whole state optimization surface type of thing. You're getting, you're adding more state in one case to get more optimization and the optimization will be better versus worse protection in this particular case. Yeah, this one, I, I think I can explain that. Um, so here's the general way I look at it. And it, it's, again, it's hard without a larger diagram, but you know, suppose I've got a hundred tunnels going through one link. I can protect all those tunnels across that link with just one backup tunnel. Okay, cool. Uh, but what happens that, you know, if after, you know, after that one hop, if those hundred tunnels split up with 20 tunnels going each one of five ways, now, in order to do node protection, I need at least five different tunnels because I need to protect the next next hop. So rather than just protecting the link that is shared by 100 tunnels, I need five different uh, node protecting tunnels to go to all those other ones. So the, the way I look at it is the more facility you try to protect. So of course, protecting a node is better than just a link, but you're going to need to have longer stretched TE tunnels in general. Again, these are very generalized comments, which means you're generally going to have more merge points depending. So you may so, end so, up with more tunnels overall. Yeah. Maybe a good topology to think about this is, is a dual homed hub and spoke network. Mm -hmm. And if you're just going to protect the, if you're just going to protect the two links to the two hub routers, then you can protect one by shifting to the other hub router or something like that. If you're going to try to protect everything, you, if that hub router going down, you actually have to build tunnels to every one of those remote sites through the alternate in many ways, in many cases, right. to make that work, right? Right. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a good topology to, to visualize it as well. So, you know, you might a lot of people say, well, why would you just protect the link when you could protect the whole node? And you say, well, you know, part of, that's part of the problem is, you know, just protecting the link, you might, you know, take a detour and then go through that same node again, even right. though even though that node is still good at, you know, you had a link failure, but that that link protection guarantees that all the nodes in the label switch path are the same. The only difference is that there might be be some other nodes that are tunneled across in the, t in the right, FRR yeah. tunnel. Uh, with node protection, it's a completely different bag because the node that you skipped is no longer in the mix. And you know, without getting too crazy into the MPLS encapsulation, this is why the uh, record route or the label recording is important uh, for TE fast reroute is because when you're doing link protection, for example, all the same nodes are in the same uh, sequence. And assuming we're talking about frame mode MPLS here is that the labels themselves don't necessarily change as much outside of that FRR tunnel because you're still sending traffic to each node. So you just have to reveal the original label to that same node. You're just hitting it in on a different link. Yeah. 
With node protection, it's a little funky because now that node that used to be in the path is completely out. So when that PLR goes to add its encapsulation, it actually needs to do a swap of whatever label was going to be towards our next hop needs to be switched to the next downstream label. And you're kind of cheating, not cheating, but you're kind of tricking the system to say, I'm going to add the encapsulation that the failed node would have added because the next next hop is expecting that label to come in. Right. Again, it's, it's a little bit tricky so, to visualize, so, so, but this is why right. it's important. So if you have the dual hub and spoke, then mm-hmm. in one case, you would just shift the traffic around to you get to the same hub. If you're mm-hmm. trying to protect against that hub failing, the upstream has to look like it's going to add the right labels to pass through the second hub and all the way to those spoke routers right. uh, or spo- the, the tail ends of those tunnels. Mm-hmm. So it's got to do a lot more work. and It's got to know that entire topology really well. Right. That probably it's time to add there's yet another type of protection in RCPT realm called pass protection. Pass yeah, protection, path protection happens isn't. on yeah. the head end and usually triggered by RCPT messaging. So when one of the links breaks, and in this case we don't differentiate between link failure versus not failure, RCPT will signal back to tail end or head end, uh, look, there's something wrong. And if you have pre-configured backup path, the head end would switch to this new path, which might completely avoid all topology. Yep. Yeah. So really the, the idea of the backup path is, you know, I've got basically two TE tunnels from source to destination, and they are sufficiently disjoint, depending on how you set that up to make sure that they don't share a lot of the same facilities. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an interesting uh, technology because it's kind of like the detour tunnels. It's one-to-one, so every LSP gets one. But the difference, like Jeff said, when there's a failure in the middle of the network, you can't just throw down the military bridge. You have to you know, basically signal all the way back to the head end that there was a problem, and then uh, you're able to use that backup path. So there's typically a little more uh, a dr- loss at that point. So it's a little bit slower of a fast reroute technology, but you don't have to deal with the additional encapsulation in the middle of the network and your packup path is already pre-signaled. Um, of course, the uh, FRR tunnels are pre-signaled as well, but in this case, it's already optimized end to end. So that whole make before break, there's generally less moving parts, I think is yeah. probably the simplest yeah. way to do it. Yeah, but there's also more loss, as you said, because mm-hmm. in case of fast reroute, your backups are pre-provisioned in hardware and at the moment, you realize there's a loss based on BFD yeah. state mm-hmm. going down or loss of signal, loss of flight. Mm-hmm. You could be switching within half millisecond. Mm-hmm. Right. In right. the pass protection case, you rely on your control plane, either IGPs or CPT, to notify head end, and then head end would switch over, which could take half a second or so. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I mean, some, in some cases, it has to go all the way to the tail end of the circuit and be signaled back. To the head. No, it goes up from point of local repair. Right. But I'm just saying, you know, it depends on where things are and stuff. You can end up in this really. If if your PLR is really close, like if their failure occurs really close to the tail end of the original TE tunnel, then the time to signal is obviously going to be longer. So your mileage definitely varies, you know, like with 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 a facility backup, like link protection, no matter where that failure occurs in the network, it still takes half a millisecond, no matter where, but the path protection, you end up with almost like a, a linear ish, you know, the farther you get from the head end, the longer, the, the more loss you incur. Right. Yeah. And so I was trying to mimic really SDH or frame relay behavior. You lose one link, you switch yeah. over to another one. Yeah. Right. I kind of thought that the way I like to think about it, at least at a high level, is kind of like a, a protect and a working path with like yep. sonnet type, stuff yeah. i mean that's yeah. maybe it's kind of a similar comparison or rpr so that's yeah. funny you called this sonnet i called this dh which shows yeah, our SDH. origin oh, yeah. <laughs> or, or rpr or yeah. anything yeah. like that right yeah. like yeah. relay atm both had yeah. those concepts yeah. as well yeah i think that i think they all sufficiently address it's like you know i, I don't rush you probably say this all the time I, I guess it's a rule 11 thing you know there's it no is. it's not really a new technology it's just a new application of an old it idea. Is. <laughs> it's the same concept over and over again and yeah we just keep reinventing it. Yeah. And we think we're going to. Suddenly we saw MPLS TP, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, was completely SDH thing. Yeah. yeah. I know. Oh, I know. I know. I know. Yeah. Great. And I think the, the last interesting point about the node protection is that it's not always possible because, you know, for example, if you're sending traffic between two provider edge routers in an MPLS network, 
you have to go through that egress PE because of, you know, maybe this isn't obvious, but I think we talked about it in an earlier show is that, you know, your ingress to egress PE, which, which one gets chosen, that's a function of your BGP uh, VPN routing, not a function of your MPLS forwarding plane. So you still need to use that same PE. So if that PE fails, then your BGP is going to have to converge and, and yada, yada, pick edge, all that fun stuff. But you know, towards your PE, if you have a link fail between that last, you know, between your P router and your PE at the end of the L, uh, LSP, you can only really do link protection there. So generally speaking, if you're trying to protect a lot of resources or facilities along an LSP, more than likely you'll have a combination of link and node protection based on what's possible and your other design requirements around things like scale, fail over time, et cetera. So it's not like you can just pick one and do it everywhere. Typically you're going to piece, you know, kind of piece part these things together based on your requirements. And the number of implementation, you could pretty much automatically say, uh, I want not, but if it's not available, please give me a link. We want to interrupt the program for just a minute to tell you about today's sponsor. For those of you who run and manage networks day to day, what's the number one challenge you have in resolving issues? Well, when IDG asked this question in their state of the network survey, over half of respondents said that finding the root cause was the biggest hurdle when it came to problem resolution. This tells me that we simply don't have the right data available to us to solve the problems that we're facing, and today's sponsor is trying to fix that. Viavi Solutions believes that troubleshooting needs a new approach, and the best way to do this is to focus on the end-user perspective. Information is key, but reliable and actionable information is what really matters. One of the many problems with standard KPIs we check on today's network is that they aren't all that reliable. Green doesn't necessarily mean that everything is good, and red doesn't necessarily mean that everything is bad. The one thing we can't argue with is how an application is performing where it matters at the end user machine. And Viavi is correlating this user experience information with the things we typically keep an eye on to give you reliable and actionable information that helps you solve issues faster and with more confidence. You should really take a minute to check out the Observer Live platform at viavisolutions.com slash network collective. Consider a new approach to network monitoring with end-user experience scoring and synthetic testing that heads off problems before they start. Viavi is offering you the opportunity to sign up for a free trial of their software and, as a special offer to our listeners, is going to be giving away several Network Collective community memberships. If you haven't made the jump into our community membership platform yet, this is a great opportunity to get access to all of the valuable membership features at no cost to yourself. Again, the site you want to go to is viavisolutions.com slash collective. Yeah. And then these other, you know, I, I got a couple other things here in the notes. I'll talk about these briefly is, you know, when you have a large network and, and thousands of links and thousands of routers, you can't just go into every router and manually configure TE tunnels to say, okay, what? I want to protect this. Yeah. Well, I guess you it could, it's job security, but uh, it's job security. You, yeah. you could write a Python script. I could do that. I could just manage it that way. <laughs> you, DevOps makes it better, man. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, a lot of routers, uh, at least a, a lot of, at least within the past 10 or 15 years, you have implementations to just tell the router to do basic things and say, I want to turn on automatic backup tunnels, which says, you know, for any LSP or for, you know, for any TE tunnel that it gets signaled that is requesting fast reroute, I'm going to give it a backup path. Now you can set very generic parameters and say, um, if you're using link coloring, for example, you say my backup paths are going to use red links only, and I'm only going to do link protection and not node protection. And then anytime a TE tunnel comes in, that uh, router says, well, I'm going to become a PLR to protect that resource. Let me compute a path. And then it gets set up and it just works. You can turn that on in a number of nodes in the network. Of course, when you turn on an automatic feature like this, you know, it's anyone's guess how many actual TE tunnels are going to get built at any given time. That number is going to generally fluctuate. So you get a little bit less control, but your management burden is sufficiently reduced there. Uh, so that's kind of an auto backup. Oh, I think that's kind of important cool. point to that. There's an explicit flag and in signaling object when there's a repeat tunnel set up called protection required. So you actually, while establishing LSP, when you go downstream, you would tell the not please establish backup if possible. Mm -hmm. so, it's an explicit so go, signaling so, option. Yeah. It's in the go path option. Rule eleven. Yeah. Intent-based networking before we called it intent-based networking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's in the, very intentionally. Yeah, in the, yeah, in the path message, there's a, a flag that basically says, you know, I'm requesting fast reroute protection if it's possible. And there's other, I think there's a couple other things, Jeff, like I think you can ask for node protection. Yeah. There's a couple yeah. other yeah. choices. Lots of flags yeah. in, in, those, yeah. in those packet areas. Right. Things. Uh, 
And then the other one, this is this, I'm going to use the Cisco language. So correct me if there's another option, but the, the primary one hop tunnels, I thought these were, when I first learned about these, I thought they were crazy and stupid, but then I realized they're kind of awesome is imagine a TE tunnel. Yeah. Imagine a TE tunnel. That's only one hop from, you know, router one to router two right next to each other. So it seems kind of goofy because the encapsulation is just implicit null. It's not really a tunnel, but the advantage of using this is if you turn on this feature everywhere, that means that every, every little, you know, implicit label switch path all through your network is going to just have this little one hop tunnel. And then at the same time you turn on automatic backups, that means that automatically every link in your network will be protected using MPLS traffic engineering. So this is like peanut butter and jelly with the auto backups feature, I think, because you can just turn all this on at the same time. And then all your links in the network. So it doesn't do node protection, but you automatically get link protection, basically a, a close to 100% coverage in your network. So you can kind of think of it like uh, we talked earlier about LFA and remote LFA, and those have increasing levels of coverage. So LFA will give you some percentage, remote LFA typically gives you more, but this option gives you 100% or very, very close to it, depending on your topology, because you're able to use TE tunnels and they can go any arbitrary topology to cover those things. Now, of course, there's going to be a state penalty. You're going to have tons of TE tunnels in your network. Uh, but personally, I thought this was a really uh, kind of smart way to provide link protection in your MPLS networks. And oh, by the way, you can also protect some of your label switch multicast traffic with it. For example, multicast LDP can be protected by these tunnels. So it has a lot of really cool kind of behind the scenes features. And, you know, I just wanted to kind of spread the word about it because I thought it was a really cool design. Okay, so explain. People well, think it was quite a popular option. Yeah. <laughs> So explain a little bit more, Nick, how this works, because what you're doing is you're basically just creating these, these null tunnels at every mm -hmm. hop, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And then what? I mean, how do you build your backup if all these tunnels are null labels? Yeah. So the idea is you, so at the same time, maybe, maybe it wasn't clear, but in general, and again, I don't remember the exact implementation details, but I'm pretty confident you're going to run LDP inside of these uh, tunnels you're as well. You're going to run LDP on top of yeah, this. You're going to run LDP inside of those tunnels. So that's how you get your actual encapsulated label switch path. But by having run little uh, one hop TE tunnels everywhere, because I have a, a T and those tunnels are all requesting fast reroute. Maybe that's the key I didn't mention. They're all requesting fast reroute. So when I turn on auto backups, every router is like, oh, I have a bunch of tunnels here that need uh, backups. So if I have a router with three links and I have three one hop tunnels, I need to create three backups to protect those three links. Right. So um, it just triggers the auto backup mechanism is what exactly. it does. That's really what it does. It triggers the auto backup and it gives okay. a mechanism to protect every link in the network. And because it's only link protection, uh, that's why it works for multicast LDP and it works just fine for label switch paths. And you don't really have to do a whole lot of management of your TE tunnels that way. Now, of course, you lose a lot of control when you do that, but it gives you excellent coverage and it's it's very simple configuration to use. Right, and, and it's a lot of state uh, in the network, in the control plane. Generally a lot, plane, yeah. Right, it's a lot of state, which, which yeah. is, you know, that's the trade-off, right? You want yep. perfect optimization, you have to throw a lot of state at it to get to that optimization. Yeah. Generally, every link, for every link in the network, there's going to be three TE tunnels if you think about it. So, for right. example, if I had, if I imagine, I have, imagine I just have three routers in my network, like a triangle, there's going to be, actually it's four, because in every direction, there's going to be a primary one-hop tunnel going either way. So that's six right off the bat. Then there's going to be a backup tunnel going across each one right off the bat. And of course, the length of those backup tunnels could increase the state even more. Um, you know, if your backups are really long, all those intermediate uh, label switch routers have to retain state right. for every tunnel as well. So yeah, you're definitely looking at a very significant amount of state in this network. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. So what about auto mesh? Yeah, auto mesh. The idea of auto mesh is... You know, you can go to like, for example, all your PEs and create kind of a, like a tunnel template. So rather than if you have a thousand PEs and it's a massive layer three VPN, like let's just say like a retail chain that with thousands of stores and, you know, they're all within the same carrier, let's say over a classic MPLS layer three VPN for that uh, customer. You can go to all the different PEs and say, I'm going to create just this general tunnel template. And because I don't want to create 999 tunnels to all the PEs, that would be a mess. On this tunnel template, you can just configure it like it was a regular TE tunnel, give it affinity, give it bandwidth reservations and blah, blah, blah. And then that thing is going to be copied, you know, behind the scenes a thousand times for all those remote destinations. And 
IGP is going to signal this mesh group ID. So it's another IGP extension. For example, in OSPF, you specify, uh, you know, a, I think it's like a 32 bit number or whatever. Whenever that gets information gets received by IGP, uh, the router is going to look and I think they're uh, within the opaque area LSA. So I think it's a type 10. It looks in there and it says, okay, I received these type 10 LSAs from these other 999 routers. That's how I know what my destination is supposed to be. So that's one way of doing it. Uh, you can also use kind of an accessless based approach and say any uh, TEIDs with their uh, TE router ID in this range of IP addresses is going to be considered a tunnel destination as well. So there's a few different ways to do the exact implementation, but the general idea is I want to have some kind of TE design. I want lots of TE tunnels because I need protection for everything and I need customized backups as well. So I'm going to create this, I'm going to automatically mesh all my TE endpoints using this technology to avoid some manual configuration. Now, of course, a lot of these features, before automation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was going to say that a lot of these features came out before network automation was really popular. Nowadays, no, who cares if there's a thousand tunnels in the config, they're easily managed. So we tried to put this code uh, as features in the network operating system instead, which worked okay. But now we can do it in a little bit smarter way. I just love the way you say that, Nick. We don't, who cares if there's a thousand tunnels in my configuration? <laughs> yeah, well, if you're not managing it, if the machine manages it, yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. But uh it, yeah, depends, on, it depends on your state of change, right? <laughs> how, how much churn exists in your network? Because yeah, for, a network, for a network that's pretty solid, yeah, having a thousand is a one-time endeavor. But if, I, if I'm having to modify 50 of those on a thousand routers, you know, once every week, all of a sudden this management task is something that's a, a bit more complicated and you need yeah. but, the, but then you have to automate your automation. That's all. Well, that's what I'm saying is you're going to, you're going to need to get a controller in here anyway. It's just a different, it's the whole centralized versus decentralized again. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, just, the, it's the same conversation over and over. Different, again. It's a different job security this time. <laughs> same idea though. I think this is job insecurity because I quit. Yeah. <laughs> an environment like that. Yeah. I mean, this, this would, you know, that kind of idea, you know, if we talk about the automation piece that like Jordan said, if you have a relatively static environment, like retail stores may not close a whole lot. Maybe they add a couple new, they close a few, whatever. Uh, but yeah, if it's rapid change, the auto mesh approach could be really kind of self-serving because as you know, as PEs get turned up or turned down or as the mesh group IDs change, you can generally just change it on one router. And then what, you know, if you remove a mesh group from a node, everyone's TE tunnels get torn down to it, et cetera. Yeah. So one thing that's interesting to talk about is coverage. Um, and this is, I, I, the way I think about this is different than, than maybe other people, but that's, you know, not unusual <laughs> for me to think about things different than everybody else does. I always think about it in terms of rings. So um, uh, rings to start, right? So if you're three hops, LFA works, straight LFA, not even remote LFA. If you go beyond four or five hops, you really need remote LFA. And as you keep going farther and more complex topologies beyond the ring, primarily when I think about something like non-planar topologies, things get really complex and even remote LFAs don't work and you end up having to go to something like TEFRR to do coverage in a non-planar technology. Or to so usually you'll end up with, uh, with two tunnels or more tunnels, tunnel per every knot in the ring going in another direction, which makes ring, rings are very unsuitable topology from classical uh, faster out technology point of view right exactly. yeah, so, so Russ you were saying you were saying that non-planar topologies is typically where you start to need te fast reroute is that that's, that was what you said yeah that's kind of my experience is that that makes in, sense you know for three hops you can do IPLFA it's fine mm -hmm. that's all you're fine four hops you can if you can tolerate the convergence time a little bit or a short micro loop or whatever you can get away with IPLFA if you go much beyond that you kind of need remote LFA, right? You, you kind of need a tunnel because now the ring is large enough that you're actually having to hop over somebody to get there. Right. When you get into non-planar topologies, the rings are overlapping in a way that it makes it almost impossible to do remote LFA. So you right. almost have to pre-calculate a route edge to edge to make things work right. So yeah. In which case now you're just going to have to go to DEFRR. That's just all you can do. Yeah. So you're saying, so, so from a practical perspective, when you say non-planar, I think the way you explained it to me a few years ago was if you're drawing your network diagram just on a sheet of paper and your links cross over each other, like if yeah. you were to draw a little line jump, you know, that now makes your topology three-dimensional in a sense, you know, if you right. were to look exactly at three right. dimensions. Yeah. So for those out there who are wondering which kind you should use, if you have lots of kind of draw your diagram, 
And of course you want to draw it in a way that is, uh, you want to try to make it plainer. For example, I could draw four nodes in a square and make a bunch of lines crisscross. That's not the yeah. goal here. You know, if, you're, yeah. if your topology is legitimately complex and you have a lot of seemingly overlapping rings or overlapping uh, just general shapes of whatever your network ends up looking like, you're probably going to struggle to use just the, the basic uh, LFA technologies. And then hopefully this podcast helps you understand how you can use TE fast reroute to get better coverage. Right. Uh, that's one of the best. We call advantages. them pathological topologies. Pathological topologies. <laughs> pathological. Oh, we are. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's officially current term. <laughs> yeah. uh, probably would be a good time to bring new kit on the block TILFA that yeah. solves those problems. Yeah. Tell us about that, Jeff. <laughs> so this work is being done routing working group, which I have the privilege to chair. So yeah. Uh, so TILFA is based on segment routing. As we remember in segment routing, you've got two types of IDs or seeds. One is the nodal seeds that identifies your node, things of router ID. Another one is adjacency seeds that identifies your directional adjacency on the node. When you start thinking from uh, protection perspective, using adjacency seats where path is not loop free gives you ability to hop over node that is not loop free. So by doing so, you could construct any path that is loop free as a path. So TILFA gives you exactly this functionality. When you start computing your LFA and you see that there's no LFA in pre-TILFA times, you would try remote LFA. If your topology is pathological, you will still get no protection. With TILFA, however, using adjacency seats, you could always find the PQ nodes or the intersection of extended P and Q spaces from which protection is available. So where you could just go towards destination. Yeah. So the way the way I look at look at this is, you know, we still have to do the PQ logic. Uh, that we talked about before. The difference, though, is that rather than label switch paths, which are RSVP based label switch paths that have state for every LSP along the MPLS network, with segment routing, we use IGP to carry information about the node and its adjacencies. Basically, everyone will know that information in advance. And it generally scales better because I look at it kind of like Lego blocks where you can pick and choose the different SIDs you want to use based on what the topology looks like. And you don't necessarily need a complex one, you know, single LSP that gets signaled from end to end using a soft state protocol. So it's a better way to get scalability and still get topological independent protection without needing all that state. Another interesting consequence of using TILFA is that you could compute backup path that is your post-converged path, meaning when your IGP converges, you won't need to switch traffic. So the traffic is going to stay on the same path you use for backup. So there's no micro loops, there's no traffic drop due to switching between paths. Yeah, I so think that's one be, very important properties. Yeah, so there's no so there's no need for make before break anymore. You just switch to the correct path, right? Yeah, you stay on the bus converse path. Yeah. So so maybe what we should do here is break now and leave more discussion of SR for SR. Let's do a show on SR. Yeah. Let's do a show on PPR and let's do a show on PSAP. Those are great ideas, especially because we're uh we're finishing up here right because this is the last shot on mpls and like this was the chain that we were on and now now we need new stuff to deep dive on so we're yeah. just going to create every show totally. we'll end with three or four more topics that we have to do deep dives on <laughs> and this will be the never-ending series of, of, of deep dives so on. there's one implication to use the ilfa your label stack is starting to grow the more yeah. adjacency seats you need the more labels in the stack there are and it's probably topic for another presentation how to solve those issues there's whole framework called msd that we are going to describe there all right it sounds like we have uh, lots of content but I, i'm with russ i think that this is probably a good point to stop <laughs> um you know <laughs> i love these shows where like i come on and i do the intro and then i don't speak because i just like yeah you guys uh, you actually guys... you know now that we're on audio only jordan can fall asleep and nobody notices <laughs> <laughs> say, is, we got a couple more that are that are being released with video this is one of them but uh but <laughs> it's definitely not the intent but man uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna have to listen back to this one a couple of times just to catch up it's just a world i'm not in all the time you guys uh you guys are working in spaces that uh that i don't get the opportunity to touch very often it's really cool actually to uh to get some exposure to that. 
So, uh, so before we, before we uh, close up though, I want to give uh, everyone here an opportunity to, to let people know where to find them. If you have questions from today's show or just want to connect and follow. Uh, so Jeff, where can people find you online? Uh, mostly LinkedIn. I blog from time to time on Ivan's blog sometimes on Ross's. You're, you're a long time yak? Is, is yeah. uh, IP space? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Nick, how about you? Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Nick Russo 42518 or my personal website, njrusmc.net. Awesome. And that personal website loads in like, I don't know, like four nanoseconds or something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, so Russ, where can people find you? Rule11.tech, which is loading a lot faster nowadays since I switched the whole site around. Um, you can always find me on Twitter at Routing Geek. I do actually every now and again log in. Find me on LinkedIn. You can always find me at the Network Collective. Awesome. So uh, I have my, my personal website, which gets updated, I don't know, about once a year. So jordanmartin.net, if you're like looking for a bunch of old content, it's probably about time I put something new up there. Uh, obviously putting a lot of time in here at, uh, at Network Collective, so you can find lots of stuff there. Uh, if you'd like to find more podcasts like this one, uh, there are a bunch of them. We were talking, I think that we're 120 or 130 total episodes between member, short take, all of that. So there's lots of content. If you're just starting with us, you can go to the, the networkcollective.com. Every episode we recorded is there. You can watch, you can listen. Um, so you can watch. It's a, that's a short lift thing. If you, if you missed our last episode, we're going to be, we're going to be cutting the video on our long form podcast. So, uh, we're going to be going to audio only on these longer ones. Uh, so that's a, that's a novelty now. You have the, uh, the, the, first, the first year and a half worth of content that's going to be on video and then, uh, then everything else is going to change. So uh, you definitely want to find us. Um, uh, if you want the content delivered to you, you can find us on your favorite podcast app or in iTunes and all the other repositories. You can find us there. Um, also, just uh, want a quick shout out for our community uh, membership. If you haven't checked it out yet, you go to uh, thenetworkcollective.com slash join. It's an awesome community of network engineers, people who are looking to grow, learn new things, uh, share their experiences. Excellent Slack. Where we all stay in touch throughout the week and, and share the things we're working on. And uh, I think that's it. Uh, so thanks again, guys, for coming on the show. Thanks for watching and listening. And we will uh, see you next time. <laughs>